The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. One of the problems in Myanmar, for example, has been that the different ethnic armed groups and ethnic political parties have not often worked together. And so when you have this new sort of repressive authority coming in, it can help build new alliances and build the strength of existing alliances. And this can help instigate federal democracy as the next phase. We see this retreat across Asia and this coincide with this global retreat of democracy. But I personally believe that federalism and democracy are the modern solution. In this episode, federalism to the rescue in ethnically divided Asian societies. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. The legacy of colonialism in Asia, as elsewhere, has too often meant the yoking of diverse and even mutually hostile ethnic groups inside a common national border. Countries like Myanmar and Sri Lanka, to name but two, have been left to play out their unresolved ethnic divisions with prolonged civil unrest and bloodshed. Political and economic spheres in these young nation-states tend to be dominated by one group over another or by two groups over a third, only fueling resentments anew and perpetuating the cycle of volatility. And among the victims are prospects for inclusive and stable democratic institutions. So how can ethnically divided democracies find a way forward? How do they balance autonomy with stability and unity? Federalism is one answer, with new models increasingly getting the attention of both scholars and policymakers. Federal democracy has long had a home in Asia in countries like India and Malaysia, but how can it be fashioned to ease conflict and promote stability in nations where ethnic animosities remain raw? And where federalism is the stated aim, what's the reality on the ground? Joining me to discuss these issues are Professor Baogang He, Alfred Deakin Professor and Personal Chair in International Relations at Deakin University, and Dr Michael Breen, Public Policy Researcher at the University of Melbourne School of Social and Political Sciences. Welcome Baogang and welcome Michael. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Ari. When we talk about federalism in Asia, what's the model we're talking about, Michael? What are, what are the key ingredients that must exist for a nation to be said to be governed by a federal system? Yeah, so federalism is not a term that uh, people necessarily agree on what it means, but there's a few key features that we can say are you know, essential to federalism. Federalism is basically about the sharing and division of state power between a central government and regional or provincial governments. So it can be characterized as combining shared and self-rule. Another way of characterizing it is unity in diversity. And so this is particularly important where you have ethnically diverse countries like we do in many parts of Asia. So one of the most important parts of federalism is that the power is actually allocated by the constitution. And so there needs to be rule of law. The constitution needs to be supreme and there needs to be some kind of independent umpire or judiciary that arbitrates and adjudicates between the center and the provinces or regions. There's also usually two houses of parliament and the upper house is intended to be representative of the states and regions, although in practice, it doesn't always work that way. When you look at ethnically diverse countries too, 
we find that the way that you design the regions or provinces known as states in Australia is particularly important because one of the reasons that you're looking for federalism here is to provide some kind of cultural autonomy to the different ethnic groups. And so when you draw these boundaries to incorporate or accommodate particular groups, we have this kind of ethnic or multinational federalism. But this is in itself the cause of much controversy and disagreement in some of the countries that we'll be talking about today. And so what happens, Balgang, when your ethnic groups are widely dispersed? For federalism to work, does it require geographic concentration of different ethnicities? If you have a concentration of one ethnic group, sometimes at sub-state level, and it constitutes more than 60 or 70 percent, always difficult to work out a federal solution. Sometimes this diverse and disparate ethnic group actually in uh, advantage for federalism. Nepal is the best example. You have a so diverse ethnic group spread everywhere, and then it is possible to build up federalism. I suppose it's possible because of strong multi-ethnic political parties. How core are they to the success of federalism, Balgang? To successfully establish federalism, you need a political will. So political party is a key player. And the political parties' decisions that accept, promote federalism is a fundamental important issue. So when the political party reflect ethnic group, sometimes they demand full independence. So sometimes they don't want federalism. Sometimes under certain conditions, they demand federalism because federalism offers a better deal. Michael, to what extent is ethnic tension an essential ingredient? Does there have to be a problem for federalism to be the answer? I think that the modern day federal systems are essentially in response to this problem that results or comes out of some of these ethnic tensions. So previously you had this idea of coming together federalism, which I think we know very well in Australia. Canada would be another example, wouldn't it? Exactly. Yep. So you have these different colonies coming together and forming a new country, sharing some of their powers with the centre. Whereas these days, they're almost all what we call holding together federalism. And they're essentially in response to a risk of secession. So the country's elites and major political actors want to hold that country together. And as Baogang said, there can be these pressures from ethnic parties and ethnic armed groups seeking to establish their own state. And federalism is a response to that. And we see it in almost all modern day peace settlements, some kind of federalism or some kind of ethnic autonomy. So in a sense, federalism is like a risk management strategy for secession and to try and find some sort of middle ground between providing ethnic autonomy, but without providing so much that this new unit becomes its own self and seeks to split off from the main country. If we're talking about federal solution to ethnic problems, first we need to look at is the pre-modern conditions, pre-modern society, virtually all the society in United Kingdom, in France, and China, or even Myanmar or Thailand, they will implement this kind of centralized policy to just convert those small ethnic groups into a bigger group. That seems to be a kind of universal phenomenon in the pre-modern condition. So as Marcus Rutley said that in the modern condition, we give up this kind of old way. 
And in modern days, more and more countries use federal solutions. So best example in the Asian context is 2015, Nepal adopt a new constitution, build up a federal system. But be aware that there's also another solution is a non-federal minority rights protection mechanism. So that is also modern solution to offer rights protection to all the ethnic group. Where would be an example of that? If we think about Australia and the United States, so indigenous people, definitely in Australia, some are demanding this kind of federalization of indigenous issues. That means the indigenous people can have its own state, has more legislative power, but this unlikely will work out in Australia context. Also in the American, American India, in the historical demand their independent state, it wouldn't work out. As well as in the United States, Black people, Black population, before civil war, they demanded establish an independent state. Even British was an advocate, promotes this idea. All those ideas don't work out, but still help to provide a solution to ethnic problems, that is, provide the rights mechanism. What we see in both the United States and Australia, we see the state slowly promote, develop, and protect a set of the rights that protect indigenous groups. Valgang just mentioned there Nepal in terms of being one of the modern conditions regarding federalism. Michael, you argue there are actually three generations of federalism in Asia. Nepal would be in the third, but can you take us through those different generations as you see them? Yeah, so essentially um, federalism started to become an approach in Asia following Second World War and decolonization process, and we saw it introduced into Pakistan, India and Malaysia. And also Myanmar and Indonesia also very briefly had federalism, at least in name, although it was never really implemented at all in Indonesia and certainly not properly in the case of Myanmar. And so we have these three longstanding federations in Pakistan, India and Malaysia. And this is like the first generation of federalism. And then through the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, we saw the introduction of federal features onto unitary states. And so this is the case in China, Indonesia, and the Philippines. So they remained fundamentally unitary, but they provided some kind of constitutional decentralization, which is one of those fundamental features that I talked about. Although when you look at, say, a case like China, when you don't have a supreme constitution, you can't really say that it has federalism, but it does have these important federal features, which were then, for a time at least, enhanced through special autonomy for Hong Kong. Most recently, we've had this emerging third generation. And if you asked me a few years ago about it, I would have been very, very positive. And we had processes underway in Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Nepal, and the Philippines, all to introduce a new federal state. Today, we've seen that Nepal is the only one that successfully established federalism as part of its democratic transformation. We've seen Sri Lanka take a step backwards towards some kind of mono-ethnic nationalism and abandoned, at least for now, its federal agenda. Uh, the Philippines presidents quietly dropped federalism from the agenda, although this is partly because they've strengthened the autonomy arrangements in Mindanao, which has taken some of that pressure towards federalism off. And in Myanmar, we're witnessing now the tragic reassertion of military power 
So there has been a bit of a reversion, but the federal idea is by no means dead in these countries. It is resting, I would say. (laughs) We'll certainly return to that, Michael, and the issue of a bigger picture. But if we can just go to some of those countries very specifically. And Balgang, if I ask you about Myanmar, do you think that given recent events, do you think that it spells the death knell of federalism in Myanmar? Or do you think, as Michael says, it's resting? We don't know what's going on. We see this largest protest going on right now. And even ethnic group joining the Burma group together and the protest against military regime. We don't know how this event's unfolding in this year. So is there still a possibility that current events might provide a critical opportunity to moving federalism ahead? and fast. But also it's possible if the military regime maintains its power, it will not only destroy democracy, it definitely will also destroy federalism for a certain period, at least for a few years. But I don't think the Myanmar can resist the federalist idea. This idea will survive. You say Myanmar can't resist it, Balgang, but what progress has been made in reality in Myanmar over all these years, even with a, a stated aim of federalism that has been there for so long? I mean, how how strong are the federalist institutions and the federal roots in Myanmar? So the federalist idea or practice is deeply rooted in history of the Myanmar. They had a several setbacks, but the idea always survival, always very strong. So the big promoter of the federalism come from minority group. So Myanmar is a diverse country with so many different ethnic groups. The driving force always from this diverse ethnic group. So in order to maintain state unity, so whoever to come to power in Myanmar, they have to adopt certain elements of federalism. That is, they must protect the institutionalized those minority rights. So that's probably they have to do in the modern conditions. I would agree. And I would think that it's very hard to see any alternative in the long term in Myanmar to some kind of federalism. There are areas in the country at the moment that the military and the government aren't able to govern at all. They have to ask for permission to enter. There's quasi mini states existing. So in a sense, you already have this federal practice. In a way, it's about legitimizing that and incorporating it into the state. And the absence of federalism over all these years has been the you know the major factor that's been inhibiting democratization and economic development and the lack of kind of alliance between some of the democratic forces and the national league for democracy and those ethnic groups who are demanding federalism has again inhibited democratization but looking at the present situation i just want to add that the military has actually reasserted its commitment to federalism The problem, of course, is that we can't really believe what they say or put too much faith in it. So they are trying to use federalism as a way of getting some of those ethnic groups on board. So they are trying to create a split, I suppose, between the democratic 
forces so that it splits between the Burmese majority and NLD supporters and some of the ethnic groups. But at the moment, most of the ethnic groups and ethnic political parties are continuing to protest and side with the National League for Democracy and the reinstatement of federalism. But I think one way or the other, we're going to see federalism instituted in Myanmar, whether it's sooner or later. At the same time, though, Michael, could you not argue that holding together ethnically divided states potentially becomes ultimately counterproductive, particularly when you look at the history? And I'm thinking of Myanmar now. Yeah, absolutely. It can be counterproductive. And there are certain situations, I think, where it's a better idea that countries do split up and we can look at, say, Singapore, for example, and it's done quite well. That was Singapore and Malaysia that were were together under a federal arrangement in the 60s, but that lasted a nanosecond, didn't it? That's right. Yeah. And then, of course, we have East Timor. And I don't think we would find too many people arguing that East Timor should become part of Indonesia again. But unfortunately, the history of secession around the world is usually associated with large-scale violence and even genocide. And we do have these powers that be in Myanmar that are very, very resistant to this idea of secession. So I think that the most practical approach is a federal solution rather than trying to break up the country. And we also need to look at issues of capacity and whether these kind of areas that could potentially break off would actually be able to govern themselves in the longer term. I think that's quite questionable. So one critical issue that right now is the impact Chinese Belt and Road Initiative in Asia, in particular in Myanmar. So if we look at this Belt Road initiative project that's involved billions dollars project, variety of projects from north to central Myanmar to the south. So projects spread everywhere in Myanmar. In order to successfully implement, complete those projects, from Chinese side, that's kind of require a more centralized government. So this is kind of driving force come from economic side. So those economic side driving force will kind of pull Myanmar into another centralized government rather than this federal system. Michael, what about Sri Lanka? We've looked at Myanmar in, in some depth. How different is the picture in Sri Lanka? Uh, so Sri Lanka has some important different conditions in relation to the makeup of its ethnic groups that I think is very significant in how it all plays out. So in Myanmar, you have upwards of 100 different ethnic groups. And in Sri Lanka, you pretty much can divide it into three major ethnic groups. The largest and dominant ethnic group, the Sinhala, are around 75% of the population. So they can, under the democratic system, pretty much monopolize power And if it's in the interests of the particular elites, they can enforce a unitary view of the state. So it was in response to the repeated rejection of demands for cultural rights and language rights and equal treatment in education and employment that the Tamils started to demand some kind of independence or federalism. Initially, those demands weren't there, but because they were excluded from political and economic spheres, then we started to see this uprising. It's very difficult to design a kind of political system that creates a a better power balance because it is so one-sided towards the Sinhala majority. And so what you get is this kind of 
approach where the political parties focus in on appealing to the specific ethnic interests of that majority group because they know they don't need the minority vote to win anymore. And you get this idea of what they call ethnic outbidding. And so where they gradually make more and more nationalistic type promises in order to capture that particular vote because that's the vote that will get you in government. And unfortunately, there is more votes in that kind of strategy and strategies of tolerance and minority rights and federal rights tend to lose out when it comes to election day. And and we've seen that in the most recent election where there was one party who was basically pushing for a more tolerant and federal approach and one party that was pushing for ethno-nationalist and, you know, Buddhist-focused agendas, and they won comprehensively. Michael, does that go to the heart of the design of the electoral system? Would a different electoral system in Sri Lanka produce a different outcome? So Sri Lanka actually has tried the two main electoral systems, being first-past-the-post or plurality, and also proportional electoral systems, and it doesn't actually make too much difference in Sri Lanka because of where and how people live. So the Tamils are mostly populated in the north. So they win their proportion of seats. But it's too small to make an impact. But it's too small to make an impact. That's exactly right. So they need to look at alternative options like what we call consociationalism, where you get basically a mandated sort of coalition government or minority veto rights on certain things. But the theory is, you know, I agree with this approach that you also need to accompany those kind of rights with some kind of autonomy, whether that's just cultural autonomy that doesn't necessarily be linked to particular territories or whether it's some kind of territorial autonomy, those things need to go together. But it's very difficult to get federalism instituted in an existing democracy when you have those kind of demographics because it becomes an electoral issue and the majority tend to prefer the status quo because it privileges their particular identity and culture and religion. And when we've seen it come about in Asia in the past, it's actually been as part of a democratization process where these small groups who might otherwise be outnumbered can have a greater say because of, you know, the power of arms, essentially, in a number of cases. Because Sri Lanka has been one of the, out of these countries looking to become federal, it's been the one that's had a longstanding democracy. So democracy in this case has actually been a barrier towards its federalization. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at University of Melbourne. And just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website, which again, you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by international relations expert Professor Balgang He and public policy researcher Dr Michael Breen. We're talking about how a federalist approach to governance might work to ease tensions in countries with high levels of ethnic conflict. Balgang, we've spoken about Myanmar and we've spoken about Sri Lanka and earlier Michael made the point that President Duterte in the Philippines has essentially given up on his proposal of federalism. Why is the Philippines a country where federalism has not been embraced? So if we look at Duterte's, when he came to power, he one of the slogan uh, promises was that he would turn the Philippines into 
the federal system within first two years. That was his promise, but he failed to do so. Even a few years ago, we even discussed some project with a Philippine colleague in Malina. So we tried to use this deliberative democracy approach to discuss this uh, federalist issue in Philippines. But in the end of the day, one of my collaborators, who was a dean of international relations study in one of the top universities, he was out of favor by Duterte. So Duterte is no longer interested in federalism. But why? What was it that changed? Was it not embraced by the people of the Philippines? So one is his personality impact. Second is his impact of Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. So under Duterte's presidency, China has been able to embark many BAR projects across different provinces. In order to complete those projects successfully, you need a centralized coordination. So those economic driving force push towards a more centralized government. Plus the Mindanao issues, so far they give this autonomies and they are work some deal. Original Mindanao was a kind of driving issue, driving force for Philippines to establish federalism. Apparently there was another kind of level of the issues. So it's a kind of internal politics going on. So when you transform unitary system into the federalist system, that means the existing state, they will demand the equal rights, equal kind of monetary power as those autonomous states. Inevitably, you, you kind of redesign the whole center and state relationship. This is the issue involved so many problems. Michael, it's an interesting case in the Philippines, isn't it? Because Duterte himself, of course, is from Mindanao, which is the area where, where the significant ethnic divisions remain. He came in and he was quite determined to institute federalism and he took a lot of active steps early in his tenure towards it. And, you know, all of those points that Baogang has made are very true, but I would also add that it just didn't turn out to be very popular with the people. And a lot of people thought, oh, Duterte is so popular, he can put it forward and people will get behind it. But, you know, people are increasingly cynical about these kind of governance reforms. And a lot of the selling points were actually removed from the original proposal. So when they first started talking about it, they were talking about changing from a presidential system to a parliamentary system. They were talking about abolishing the current provinces and removing the power from the existing governors. And they were also talking about putting a ban on political dynasties. And so throughout the drafting process, which was very elite driven and also involved the political parties, they basically removed all of those things from the final draft or the draft constitution that they consulted on. And so they went around and they did a roadshow in various towns and cities right across the country and found that their proposals to be very unpopular. And, you know, survey results were more than 60% of people were opposing any kind of change of this nature. So People just saw, okay, so you're going to keep the provinces, it's going to be more expensive, more inefficient, you're going to keep the political dynasties, this is just a, you know, a power grab to reinforce the existing political dynasties that we have, and we don't trust that this is going to be for genuine reasons anymore. 
So that process of drafting a constitution took out, in a sense, all those attractive parts and the people pretty well rejected the idea in the end. Michael, is that unique to the Philippines? If you look at how federalism is viewed by people in other countries, in let's say in Myanmar or in Sri Lanka or Nepal, is that hostility towards federalism unique to the Philippine situation? I don't think it's entirely unique, but there is a general concern that exists that federalism can be more expensive and it can just be another way of giving more people power, more access to resources, more opportunities for corruption and clientelism to come about. But I think one of the key differences is that those ethnic divisions in the Philippines, besides with the Bank Samoro in Mindanao, are far less than they are in many other countries in Asia. So in countries like Myanmar and Sri Lanka, people are looking for federalism as a way of getting ethnic autonomy and some kind of self-determination. But in the Philippines, people are more looking at to end this hyper-centralization in Manila that currently exists. And so with the Bangsamaro in Mindanao autonomy arrangements, that ethnic-based pressure is gone. And so now it becomes around issues of economic development, efficiency, and uh, democratization. The Philippines is already a democracy and, you know, there's just not enough argument for it in a sense. Balgang, we, we mentioned earlier Nepal and, in fact, in the context of it being a success, would you describe Nepal as the successful example of federalism? And, indeed, I wonder how that sits with very recent events, including the attempt to dissolve parliament by the Prime Minister. So, uh, as uh, Marco mentioned earlier, that in the third stage of federalism in Asia, among those countries, only Nepal was successful to build federalism. All the other countries, like the Philippines, Myanmar, Thailand, and Sri Lanka, experienced setback, retreat. Nepal's success was largely due to this constitutional settlement. They successfully developed this, what we call the hybrid federalism. So the key state, seventh state, is not pure based on ethnic group. The state is based on a mix of the viability, geographic consideration, plus certain components of ethnic elements. So they are combined this ethnic federalism with territorial federalism and mixed together, deliver a kind of workable solution to Nepal's problems. So if we compare this Myanmar, so Myanmar has historically advocated this pure ethnic federalism that all the state must be based on ethnicity, even a few years ago, when Marco and me, we went to Myanmar, the scholar often talking about this pure federal solution, even makes the sixth region into Myanmar's Burma state. So the rest seven ethnic states and the plus Burma state are on the equal basis. So those kind of ideas, those are pure ethnic federalism, doesn't work in Asia. So Nepal's success was a very practical political compromise, mix the ethnicity and viability and geographic consideration together, deliver an innovative institutional solution. So currently, the Myanmar, if they want to further continue federalism, one of the issues they must 
reconsider is whether they should abandon this pure ethnic federalism. So Marco and I, we did a survey. We found that even most people reject this kind of pure ethnic federalist idea. So Michael, is Nepal a good example, I guess, of the flexibility of federalism and how strong are the federal institutions in that country looking at the recent political issues that they face? So federalism, yeah, one of its strengths is absolutely that it is adaptable to all kinds of different contexts. And so you can't just obviously import one model of federalism into another country. So Myanmar, of course, needs to design its own sort of approach. And I you know, fundamentally agree with the points Baogang's made, because when you are looking at federalism as being in response to a secession risk, you can actually increase that secession risk by having these pure ethnic states because they can develop their own identity and their own sort of resources to then mount a secessionist movement in the future. So federalism in this sense is kind of a paradox where it can both increase and decrease this risk of secession depending on how it's designed. So the design features are fundamentally important. In terms of the strength of Nepal's federal system, It has been tested more or less recently through the attempt by the prime minister to dissolve the parliament, which was against the constitution. And it has passed that test, thankfully. It has gone to the court and the court has upheld the rule of law and the appropriate process and parliament has been reconvened. And so this is a really important demonstration of the durability of Nepal's transition. And I think it's subject to a lot of criticisms because people have so much hope for how federalism will be able to transform their country and transform its democracy and bring economic development. Now, these are very high expectations. And so it's been five or six years now since the constitution, and it's been three years since the elections. And so I think that given the time frame and the depth and breadth of changes, Nepal is doing quite well in its transition. Another test that it recently faced was in relation to covid And what actually happened was that the new provinces and the new local governments, so they actually have a three-tiered federal system. The local governments were the ones that were most prominent and active and really stood up when it came to managing this kind of crisis situation. So there's a long way to go in Nepal, but it's passed some really important tests. And I think the outlook is quite positive. Michael, would you say that there is an especially Asian form of federalism? Can you say that? Or is that to be naive maybe in the way I'm describing it? Yeah, and no, I think that we can see uh, Asian form of federalism emerging, but not fully fledged. And much of it still depends on the outcomes in these other third generation countries that we've talked about, most particularly Myanmar and Sri Lanka. But what is happening in Asia in relation to federalism is different to elsewhere, although there are similarities to Africa. But specifically, we do see this real emphasis on mixed or hybrid institutions, as Baogang mentioned, particularly at the level of provincial design. So trying to mix up some of these ethnic groups a bit, but at the same time, providing them with a degree of autonomy and and a greater role in governance at the local level. And this is an approach that's not very common elsewhere. We also see mixed electoral systems and mixed political party systems. So again, we talked a little bit about the importance of having these larger multi-ethnic political parties that can represent all the different ethnic groups. But we also see ethnic parties still playing an important role in these systems. So the theories are basically that you need either multi-ethnic parties or you need only ethnic parties that have these mandated set roles and set allocations or set representation. 
But by having these mixed systems, you can get minority ethnic groups having a say in those large parties, but also holding those larger parties to account through their regional and smaller ethnic parties that can also hold power in some of the states and provinces. And then we have mixed electoral systems, which are also really important because they mix the majoritarian elements with the proportional elements. And so they give enough proportionalities in a sense so that more groups are represented and more groups are able to be at the table and there aren't people who are permanently excluded from access to power and so resorting to arms, for example. But we also have larger or close to majorities and so you get more governance stability because it's easier to build and hold together coalition governments with these larger multi-ethnic parties that come about more when you have these mixed and majoritarian electoral systems. So the change in Nepal's political party system was one of the key reasons, in my view, that it was able to reach this peace agreement and actually implement federalism because it made constitutional changes that required political parties, the large political parties, to be multi-ethnic and have proportional elements in their candidature rather than just in the electoral outcomes. Previously, these large parties, they might have called themselves non-ethnic or neutral, but in actual fact, they were basically the ethnic parties of the dominant group. And so now they're much more mixed and now they're taking into account the interests of the smaller ethnic parties. Could that be an answer for Sri Lanka? Absolutely. I think this is the approach that Sri Lanka needs to go down. So its major parties are fundamentally ethnic parties. And I talked about that problem of ethnic outbidding, which is particularly prevalent in uh, Sri Lanka. And at the moment, Sri Lanka's major political parties do have some minority representation, but they're pretty much token representatives and they're not supported by the majority of their constituents and they don't have much influence in the party. But if those parties were forced to include minorities in important positions in those parties, those voices would be at the table and I think we'd see some kind of change in how those political parties develop their policies and sell them to the public. If we look at Malaysia, a country we've not touched on specifically, but they do have multi-ethnic parties, how successful has it been in Malaysia? Yeah, so Malaysia is different to the model that I've talked about in the past. So Malaysia has a multi-ethnic coalition. It doesn't have multi-ethnic parties, so to speak, other than in the short-lived Pakatan Harapan coalition. So I'll come to that. The coalition that's been in power for the majority of Malaysia's independence period has been led by UMNO, which is, I would say, a fundamentally Malay ethnic political party. And in the earlier days of Malaysia, it was required in a sense to go into coalition with other political parties. And it has held that coalition together more or less over the time. But at the same time, the influence of those smaller ethnic parties has declined to the extent that you wouldn't say that they were very influential at all. And I think that this is one of the problems with multi-ethnic coalitions versus multi-ethnic political parties, because they all come to the table with their particular set positions and can be rather inflexible. When you have a multi-ethnic political party, you get more internal deliberation. And as a result of that internal deliberation, you can get more moderate policies. So the main opposition parties were multi-ethnic parties and they were able to gain power briefly although that was largely in response to the corruption issue. 
Malaysia is a different situation and the multi-ethnic coalition has been able to hold it together and bring economic development, but you wouldn't say it has you know, further democratization or minority rights. And so I would see that the situation of minorities in Malaysia would be much improved if they were able to develop more multi-ethnic political parties as opposed to this Malay-dominated coalition that is currently in place. We're almost out of time, but Bargang, let me ask you how you view the future of federalism. Do you think that what we're seeing are speed bumps? You made the point earlier that Myanmar can't resist federalism. Do you believe that it is the future? It's just that we face developmental challenges along the way? Malcolm mentions this three-generation of federalism in Asia. So right now we see this kind of fourth generation, this federalist retreat in Myanmar, Sri Lanka, even to some degree in Philippines, even India's democracy has also suffered. We also see the biggest retreat is Hong Kong. In the basic law, Hong Kong actually enjoys much more constitutional rights than any other province on the autonomous regions. We can interpret Beijing's arrangement as a kind of federal system. But in the recent year, we see that Beijing has abandoned their previous practice and asserted centralized control. So some of the federal elements in Hong Kong's arrangement is gone. We see this retreat across in Asia, and this is uh, coincide with this global retreat of democracy. But I personally strongly believe that federalism and democracy are the modern solution, the modern answer. So those retreats should be regarded as short term. And in the future, the idea of federalism will come back again. We already see this idea of federalism, despite the retreat in the 1960s, 70s, many countries, Asian countries, abandoned the federalism 60s, 70s. But then it was uh, appear again in the 1890s, again revived in the, towards the 2000. So I think eventually this federalism idea will reappear in Asia. Michael, do you agree? What do you think that the recent setback across a number of countries says about the future of federalism? I agree. And I think they can be seen as setbacks and that the federal idea will reemerge. It certainly hasn't disappeared. I said it's resting. It's probably more to the point hiding in some of these cases. But I think this kind of democratic decline can actually assist in the long run because it can help to bring people together. One of the problems in Myanmar, for example, has been that the different ethnic armed groups and ethnic political parties have not often worked together. And so when you have this new sort of repressive authority coming in, it can help build new alliances and build the strength of existing alliances. And this can help instigate federalism as the next phase and in response to that democratic decay. And so you can see that in Nepal, for example, when the king in the early 2000s intervened it drove the political parties and the Maoist rebels together and they were able to form an alliance that was then powerful enough to overthrow the king and bring in federalism and democracy. So, you know, perhaps this reversion that we're seeing in Myanmar is actually potentially even a, a almost necessary step towards bringing together the other groups and building their strength in order to reinsert their vision of federal democracy. 
I have absolutely no doubt this is a topic that we will revisit over the coming years because it's fascinating to see how these countries develop and indeed not just the flexibility of federation but the intricacies of each country's own circumstances. An enormous thank you to both of you for your insights and for joining Ear to Asia. Thank you, Balgang, and thank you, Michael. Thank you, Ari. Thank you, Ali. It's been a pleasure. Our guests have been Professor Baogang He, Alfred Deakin Professor and Personal Chair in International Relations at Deakin University, and Dr Michael Breen, Public Policy Researcher at the University of Melbourne School of Social and Political Sciences. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Please help us by spreading the word on social media. This episode was recorded on the 22nd of March 2021. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Calvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.